Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, the theme text for our season of family visitation will be verses 8 through 12. So pay special attention to those verses, 8 through 12. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, or turn away from it, and do good. Let him seek peace, and ensue it, or pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you? if ye be followers of that which is good. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, <clears throat> they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evildoing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened 
by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereon to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. <clears throat> Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first word that we see in our text in verse 8 is the word finally. And when you see that word finally, you tend to assume that this must be the conclusion and the end. And in a sense it is. But it's not the end of the whole epistle. Obviously because there's still quite a bit to come after our text. But when the Apostle says, finally, in our text, he indicates that this is the end of a certain section within his epistle. And that section, excuse me, begins in chapter 2, verse 11. There we read, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So that's the beginning of this section, and our text is the end of that section. Prior to this section of the epistle, in chapters 1 and 2, the apostle Peter sets forth what we might call the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sets forth to his readers that the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us not with silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. And that through his resurrection from the dead, we have been begotten again to a lively hope, according to the mercy of God. We have been born again with incorruptible seed by the word of the Lord. And we have been made living stones in the spiritual house of God, the spiritual temple of God, So that each of us as believers is like a stone that God has carefully crafted and set into place as he is building up the spiritual house, which is his church. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light who in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Having set forth those glorious riches of the gospel of our salvation, he proceeds, in verse 11 of chapter 2, to exhort us in many different areas of the Christian life. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, 
Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Live a godly life in the midst of the world. Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. As you live in society, live a submissive life to the government, to the king, to the rulers, to the governors. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. So as servants or employees in the workplace, live a submissive life toward your masters, your employers. And then in the chapter that we read, chapter 3, verse 1, he speaks to life in the home. And he calls wives to be in subjection to your own husbands, to live a godly, humble life in the home. And then he calls us husbands to dwell with our wives as men of understanding and compassion, giving them honor, dwelling with them, praying with them. And that leads to verse 8, and that's our text. Finally, now he's concluding this section of practical exhortations for the Christian life. Finally, be ye all men and women, employers and employees, governors and citizens, whoever you might be in the church, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, and so forth. In the subsequent section, he's going to talk about the Christian's suffering of persecution. He's going to give comfort to Christians in the midst of persecution. And also, he's going to show us how to behave in persecution. These are all wonderful, fitting subjects for family visitation. I'm sure you can see that. And I'm sure that as we go into your homes in the coming weeks, we will have opportunity to touch on many of these different subjects in our visits with you as that might be appropriate. But the consistory is chosen verses 8 through 12, and they want us to focus on those verses especially in our visits. And so I preach and expound that to you this afternoon under the theme, called to be of one mind through brotherly love. Let's consider, first of all, what could be considered the main calling of the text, the calling to be like-minded. Secondly, the way of sympathetic, brotherly love. And then finally, we find in the text an encouraging incentive. Finally, the apostle says, be ye all of one Mind. Now that's an exhortation. But first of all, I want to point out that there is a fact here that we should not miss. There is a truth here that we should not miss. And that truth is that in Christ we are of one mind. We are like minded. We are one. In him. The apostle wrote this epistle to, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, the strangers who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which were different provinces in the Roman Empire. 
that indicates that the readers of this epistle were very different from each other in many ways. They lived in different provinces. They lived in different cities and towns. They were from different backgrounds, different tribes. They might have spoken different languages. They had different positions in society and in the home and family. And the same is true of us. We live in different places here in Huron and Bruce County, southern Ontario. We are of different backgrounds. We come from different church backgrounds, different family backgrounds, different experiences of life. Some of us are still young, recently married, still raising little babies in the home. Some of us are middle-aged. Some of us are empty nesters. Some of us are grandparents, even great-grandparents, so that we're all coming from different perspectives because of our age and station of life. Some of us are or were employees who worked for someone else. Some of us are employers who hire people to work for us. Some of us work in an office. Some of us work in a shop. Some work on a farm. We all come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and different attitudes about things and different opinions about things. But in Christ, we are one. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all one. And because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all one. Christ is the one whom God sent into the world to establish and create that unity in the midst of such diversity. Christ did that. He was, according to Peter earlier in the epistle, he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But now in these last days, he came into the world and redeemed us with his own precious blood. He redeemed each and every one of us who would be in the church, who are the elect. He redeemed us, and now, through the Holy Spirit, on the basis of his resurrection from the dead, he begets us anew. He makes us alive, so we're born again. He makes us who are dead into living stones, and he places each one of us as a living stone in the one spiritual house of God, of which he is the chief cornerstone. Peter talks about the fact that many people rejected him. They refused that cornerstone when he came. They crucified him. And yet, to us who believe, he is precious. He is elect. He is glorious. He is the cornerstone. And we are all bound together by the fact that we rest on Christ. Christ, through his Spirit, has planted into our hearts faith and hope and love. The same faith the same hope, the same love, so that all together we look to Christ, believing in him, resting and relying upon him for all of our salvation. All together we love Christ, we cherish him as our Lord and Savior. All together we have our hope in Christ, whether in life or in death. We find our only comfort in life and death and that we belong to Christ. He is the cornerstone of the church the foundation of the church. And we can go on and even say this, that as members of this congregation, 
a reformed congregation. We are of one mind because Christ has worked in all of us the acknowledging of the truths found in the Old and New Testament and summarized faithfully in the three forms of unity in the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and Canons of Dort. Altogether, we acknowledge those doctrines in those creeds by our confession of faith and by our becoming members and remaining members of a Reformed Church. And in that, we see that the fact and the truth is much greater than our own congregation or denomination, but indeed, we are of one mind with all Reformed believers who acknowledge the doctrines of the three forms of unity in the present time and back through history until the time when they were first written. That's the work of Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. We are of one mind in Christ. That's something we need to hear and something we need to acknowledge. Do we acknowledge that? As we look at one another, do we acknowledge we are of one mind? We are one. We are like-minded. And thank God for that. So there's that. But now the Apostle Peter comes to us and he says, Be of one mind. And that's an exhortation. Be like-minded. That's a calling. Peter was not the only writer in the New Testament who said this. In fact, Jesus himself prayed for it in John 17, verse 21. He prayed that we all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. He prayed for the oneness of all believers. The Apostle Paul exhorted this many times in his epistles. Romans 12, verse 16, he said to the Roman church, be of the same mind one toward another. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, he said to the Corinthian church, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. To the Philippian church, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And we think of that beautiful picture of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 2, where we are told after Pentecost they were of one accord, continuing steadfastly together in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. What does it mean when the apostles exhort us to be like-minded, to be of one mind? First of all, and foremost, the apostles are exhorting us to be of one mind in regard to the essentials of our faith and life as Christian and Reformed now believers. The Apostle, by this exhortation, is warning us not to allow new and strange doctrines and beliefs and ideas to enter into our minds and then into our hearts because that breaks the oneness of mind. Once we hold to different doctrines, 
than what our fellow believers hold to that breaks the oneness of mind. This also implies a warning that we are not to spread those new and strange doctrines. We are not to try to plant into the hearts and minds of other believers false doctrines and the philosophies of man. But rather, in our minds, we are to hold fast to the good old truths of the Word of God, the good old truths of the Scriptures as they are summarized faithfully in the Reformed creeds. Then we continue together, standing together of one mind. So the exhortation means continue to believe those things, continue to hold fast to those things all together in the church. Be of one mind. Don't break the unity of mind that is found in your common faith, your common hope, your common love. Now that does not mean that we are perfect in our thinking, that we never need to change anything in our minds, that the way we are now, that what we think now, what we know and believe and hold fast to now in our minds is perfect and it has no need for change, that certainly is not what the Apostle means. The rest of the scriptures make plain that we as Christians are not perfect and that we have a constant need to be repenting, which means literally to change your mind. We have a constant need to be renewing our mind, Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's change. That's changing of your mind. And all of that changing, though, is something that we are also in agreement about. We all are of the same mind that that needs to happen. We're all of the same mind, though we are not perfect, though we need to repent, though we need to renew our minds. And that implies to not only ourselves personally, but that as a church, we can never claim to be perfect. Or as a denomination, there is always a need for reforming. We are reformed and always reforming. So there's always a need that we seek to reform the thinking of our brothers and sisters in the church as well, if and when they go astray, so that we maintain harmony of mind. The oneness of mind that we have and that we're called to maintain is that our minds are in harmony with the Word of God. That's fundamentally important. But in the second place, when the Apostle says, Be ye all of one mind, that also applies to all of the practical affairs of the church. That applies to the life of the church. He is calling us as a church, and as churches, wherever we may be found, that we are thinking the same things and speaking the same things in the practical life of the church as much as possible. He's calling us not to be pulling in opposite directions. He's calling us not to be arguing just for the sake of arguing. He's calling us not to be so, so quick 
to disagree with what a brother or sister says in the church just because that brother or sister said it, or just because we don't like the way it sounds, or we don't exactly like what we hear. But he's calling us to be of one mind. Listen to each other. Learn from each other. Grow together. Be humble. And strive to have harmony of mind in all that you do. And it's a wonderful and blessed thing, isn't it? We experience that in our congregation. When we come to Bible study, for example, on Thursday nights, we sit down together around those tables and we open the Bible together and we discuss it. We all come to the scripture with the same mind that this is the word of God, inspired and infallible, and we all with humility bow to that scripture, listen to what it says, but we also listen to each other as we discuss what the passage says. And there may be differences of opinion about what the meaning is, but we listen to each other. We consider what the other person says. We weigh it. We compare it to the scriptures. And we always strive to come to one mind. We instruct each other and we receive instruction. We correct each other and we receive correction. So that in the end, the hope and desire is, and often this is the way it goes, isn't it? That in the end of the Bible study, we go home in agreement of what the passage means and how it applies to our life. How important is this in marriage? To be of one mind. He just talked about husbands and wives in the context. And how important is it in our marriages that we be of one mind in the decisions that we make? We sit down together and we talk about it. We listen to each other. We consider what each other says so that we can come to one mind and one judgment and make a decision together. And in the directions, especially in the direction that we take in our marriages and in our families, in the career we pursue, in the family that we raise, in the church that we are members of, in the major financial expenditures that we make in our marriages, we talk, we communicate, we listen, we strive to be of one mind in our decisions in our interactions with each other as a church family, outside of the Bible study, on Sundays after church, or after Bible study, or during the week, through our phone calls, through our personal visits, through our interactions of all sorts. We are to strive to be of one mind. And there are times when we get together and visit with each other and we talk about the issues of the day and we disagree. But the Apostle says, strive to be of one mind. That means calmly, humbly, talk through it. Discuss it together until you come to one mind. If you aren't there yet, strive to be of one mind on all issues that come up in the church as much as you are able. And if it comes down to it, and it's not an essential matter, then you can still come to one mind by agreeing to disagree. And by agreeing that we disagree on this, but it's not an essential matter, not an essential doctrine, we disagree, and that's okay. That's being of one mind. How important is this in consistories, in classes, and synods? 
when we get together as elders and pastor and el- a deacon in the consistory room and we deal with sometimes difficult issues, the apostle says, be of one mind. That means endeavor to come to a unanimous position as much as possible. And if you can't come to a unanimous position, if there's disagreement, then the one or two who disagree acquiesce to the decision of the majority. And that's how you come to oneness of mind. At classes and at synod, throughout the churches, the apostle exhorts us to be of one mind. That takes place through communicating, through deliberating, through listening humbly. Now, the apostle indicates, and not just Peter, but also Paul, something I find very interesting about the way in which we strive to be of one mind. If you would listen to some voices in the church, particularly in our own circles in the past few years, you would think that being of one mind had nothing to do with humility, kindness, compassion. All that matters is that you say the same thing, and you agree, and you stand together. The emphasis is placed on the fact that unity is in the truth. And that is true. We've laid that down already. The oneness of mind is fundamentally our unity of mind regarding the truth, regarding Jesus, regarding God, regarding the gospel. But there's been a great failure to recognize what the apostles say repeatedly whenever they exhort us to unity and oneness and like-mindedness. It's almost as if in the apostles' mind, these things all go together. What are those things? Listen, Romans 12, 16 and 17. Be of the same mind one toward another. I said that earlier. Now, he goes on, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. What does he say in Ephesians 4, 2 and 3? With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There again. Philippians 2, verses 2 and 3. Be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Do you hear that theme coming through all of those passages of Scripture whenever we are called to be of one mind? I hear a theme coming through. And that theme is that it's not only important to be of one mind, but it's important how you do it. As I was making the sermon, I also thought of the Lord's Supper form and those beautiful words where it talks about the fact that just as many out of many berries one wine floweth and mixeth itself together, and as out of many grains one bread is baked, so also we are many people but one body of Christ. And then the supper form says, Christ obtained the Spirit for us, 
So that, quote, we may also be united as members of one body in true brotherly love. Dot, dot, dot. One body through brotherly love for Christ's sake, our beloved Savior, who hath so exceedingly loved us. Lord's Supper form calls us to be of one mind through brotherly love. Now let's notice some of the specifics of that in our text. Finally, be ye all of one mind. First, he says, having compassion one of another. And the literal word in the Greek is sympathy. Sympathy is a Greek word. And the word sympathy means to suffer together with someone else. He's saying, be of one mind by being sympathetic toward each other. Compassionate means the very same thing. When your brothers and sisters in the church suffer, suffer with them. That's what he's saying. When your brother or sister is sick, debilitated, homebound for many weeks or many months due to a sickness or due to a surgery, be sympathetic to that brother or sister. When someone in the church has a baby and they feel weak and maybe a bit overwhelmed for a time, be sympathetic to that new mother and that family. When a family splinters due to division and a split in the church so that mothers and fathers and children are at odds with each other, be sympathetic to those brothers and sisters in their suffering. When children are persecuted at school for their Christian faith, be sympathetic to that brother or sister. When a family loses a loved one, through death or through estrangement, when a brother or sister has a child who is estranged from them, who is wandering astray in the fields of sinfulness and unbelief, be sympathetic to them in their anguish. Sympathy means that we suffer with them. It means we don't ignore them. We don't act as if we are unaware of it. We don't shrug it off. We don't forget about them. But we suffer with them. And that means that we seek to encourage and comfort them in their sufferings, in their afflictions and burdens. You pick up your phone and give them a call. You get in your car and pay them a visit. You send them a card or flowers. To be very specific, You go to the hospital and visit them there. You make them a meal. You see how they're doing. You read them scripture. You pray with them. You try to be an encouragement to them. That's sympathy. Now, when there is sympathy for brothers and sisters in the congregation, that reveals oneness of mind and nurtures it. It reveals it. Because what is this oneness of mind that we have? It's the mind of Christ. If we are Christians, we are of one mind, which means we all agree that even as Christ showed sympathy to me, I ought to show sympathy to my brothers and sisters in the church. We all agree on that. 
And when we do, therefore, it shows that oneness of mind, but it also nurtures it. Because when that sympathy is not there, and when it's not happening, that can cause us to drift apart in the church. But when that sympathy is there, and it's expressed, and it's shown, it nurtures it and draws us together in the bonds of affection. Sympathy. Secondly, the apostle mentions that we are to love as brethren. Brotherly love. Brotherly love means that we love each other as brothers and sisters who are part of one family. It means we recognize that God is our Father, Jesus is our older brother, and we are brothers and sisters part of one family. Now, in your separate family units, which I know you all treasure, as we all treasure our families when we have good, healthy families, don't you love your brother? Don't you love your sister very much? Don't you want to spend time with them? Don't you enjoy talking to them, sitting down together with them, going out with them, doing things with them? Wouldn't you maybe even say about your brother or sister, I would do anything for him. I would do anything for her. I would give them the, the, the clothes off of my back if they needed it. And that's within our separate family units. The apostle is saying now, have that throughout the church. Have brotherly love for those who are not in your separate family unit, but who are in your church family. Brotherly love, brotherly affection. So that you want to spend time with them, you want to get together with them, you like to see them. And you would do anything for them if they needed it. Thirdly, he says to be pitiful. The word pitiful is very similar to compassionate and sympathetic, but the word is a very graphic term which describes the inner physical organs of your body and how they are affected when you are moved emotionally towards someone who is suffering. You've experienced that, haven't you? When you see someone suffering, you feel moved deep in your gut. Moved. You feel that emotion of sympathy, of pity for the person and their sufferings. That's the idea of that word. Be pitiful toward each other in the church, toward your brothers and sisters in their sufferings. It refers to a tenderness of heart, a tenderness of mind that longs to help and to alleviate the suffering of others. And finally, be courteous. And that word could also be translated friendly, be friendly. And that word contains also the word mind in it, just like the the word in the beginning, be of one mind. This word says be of a friendly mind. Are you courteous toward each other? When you talk to each other, do you speak in a friendly tone? Do you have a friendly facial expression? Do you have a friendly mode of communicating? That's wonderful. But the more important thing is, do you have a friendly mind? Because you can put on a face. 
But do you have a friendly mind toward your brothers and sisters in the church? That's what he's calling us to do. So all of these attitudes that the apostle mentions, they not only manifest the oneness of mind that we have, because this is the mind of Christ, that's the mind of Christ, but it also nurtures that oneness, draws us together as a family in the bonds of love. And the motivation of why we ought to do so is as with all things in the Christian life, Was not Christ sympathetic toward you? Is not Christ your older brother who loves you? Is not Christ pitiful toward you? And isn't Christ courteous to you? He revealed all of that above all when he gave his life for you on the cross to save you from your sins and miseries and to exalt you out of the dunghill of your sin into the glory of heaven. And if Christ did that for me, that should stir me up in love toward my brothers and sisters in the church. Now furthermore, the apostle goes on in verse 9 and says, negatively, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called. This means, obviously and negatively, we must not render evil for evil toward our brethren in the church, or railing for railing, reviling for reviling, criticism for criticism, tit for tat, eye for eye. That's the norm out in the world. Because we are all prone by nature to hate our neighbor. And that hatred manifests itself in the desire for revenge. And so we find it out in the world everywhere. Evil for evil, that's the norm. But the apostle says in the church that ought not to be so. In your marriage, in mine, there's always a temptation, isn't there? To render evil for evil, railing for railing, an eye for an eye. When one criticizes the other, the natural gut response is to criticize back. When one hurts the pride of the other, the natural response is to hurt them back. When one vents their anger and frustration on the other, the natural response is to do so back. When one withholds love, gives the silent treatment, the natural response is to do it back. In school, There's always a temptation, isn't there, for you children? When you're out on the playground and one boy hurts you, hits you, says something mean to you, or when one girl refuses to play with you and runs away from you and is mean to you, that you want to hurt them back. It hurts, but the apostle says, don't render evil for evil. In the church, when one member of the church speaks ill of us behind our back and we hear about it, they are gossiping about us. They're saying things about us. They're irritating us and opposing us, hurting our reputation. 
Our desire is to hurt them back. Peter says, don't do that. God says, don't do that. Because we have no right to take justice into our own hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay if there needs to be repayment. But now we're talking within the church. Do not render evil for evil. The apostle shows us what should motivate us in that regard as well in chapter 2, verse 21. Even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Christ didn't do that. He was reviled. He was slapped. He was spit in the face. He was crucified. And he did all that for us. And therefore, we ought to follow his example. The Apostle Peter says, not doing those things, but blessing. Back to verse 9. Contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called. You know, he says, that you're called to bless each other. You know that. Don't always do it, but you know that you're called to do it, don't you? How do we know that? Because it's everywhere in the Bible. And it comes right out of the mouth of our Savior in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 44. In the great sermon on the mount, ye have heard that it hath been said, Jesus said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. You know, Peter says, that you are called to this. And Peter is not only referring to our Lord, but also to David. Because he quotes Psalm 34. In verse 10, 11, and 12 of our text, we have a quote from Psalm 34. He's quoting the scriptures of the Old Testament as proof for what he's saying to the New Testament church. And particularly now that David wrote in that psalm, Let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Clearly David was teaching in that psalm. Do not render evil for evil, but bless each other. Do good to each other. Speak well of each other. I'd like to just zero in for a moment on that idea of seeking peace and ensuing it or pursuing it. Obviously, if we are going to be of one mind, we are of one mind, And if that oneness of mind is going to be maintained and nurtured 
so that we grow closer in bonds of affection, we need to seek peace and pursue it. I like the imagery there. Peace. I know many of you like to go out into the bush and hunt for a deer in hunting season. Peace is like your deer. It's skittish. And if you make a wrong move, if you reveal yourself to the deer, he's going to run away. And then what do you do? You might pursue after it. If you really want that deer, you're going to run for it, try to catch it. That's the idea. Seek peace and pursue it. Chase after it. Run swiftly after it. Because peace is skittish. Peace is fragile. Little children know all about that. Little children very quickly can devolve from playing nicely together to suddenly disagreeing about something like a toy and whose turn it is to use the toy. And then, in an instant, all fighting breaks loose. But we adults do that too. Peace. Seek peace and pursue it. Chase after it. If it's something that you really want, you'll strive to have it. And how, you ask? How do I chase after it? Exactly what Peter is saying refrain your tongue from evil. That's all. Restrain your lips so that you don't speak guile, deceitful things, gossip, backbiting, slander, and all the rest. Don't do that. Turn from evil and do good. That's how you seek peace. Speaking words of encouragement, words of kindness, words of comfort. Now finally, the apostle gives us a very encouraging incentive. He says in verse 10, and now he's quoting Psalm 34, as I said, He that will love life and see good days, and so forth. And going back to verse 9, he says, You are called to bless each other, that ye should inherit a blessing. That's the incentive. That's meant to encourage us in this Christian living. Now, it's very important that we understand what he does not say. He does not say that we should bless each other because we will inherit a blessing by blessing each other. He doesn't say we're going to inherit a blessing Because, because of something that we do. As if something that we do is the ground by which we earn it. But, he says, you know that you are called to live this life blessing each other, doing good to each other. That, he says, that ye should inherit a blessing. Now what does that mean? Bless one another, that you should inherit a blessing. He means this. God 
who sent his only begotten son into the world to die on the cross for your sin and mine, to rise from the dead in order to merit by his works and by his obedience that blessing, in order to obtain that blessing which we could never obtain by our works, so that he will give it to us as a free inheritance. You see the word inherit in the text. Inherit means to receive something as a free and gracious gift. Not that you work for it, earn it, and obtain it, but you receive it as a gracious gift. Christ died and rose from the dead to merit that inheritance, to give it to us, and God is pleased to begin giving that blessing to us in the way of living the Christian life. Just what our synod said a couple of years ago in the heat of controversy. God is pleased to give that to us by means of faith and in the way of living this Christian life, this thankful life. You are called to bless each other. That you should inherit a blessing. That's an encouraging incentive. He goes on to ground that in Psalm 34, verse 10. For, now he's quoting scripture, he that will love life and see good days, let him live this way. Do you love life? Literally, he that wants to love life, that's what it means. He who desires to love and enjoy his life. He who desires and wants to see good days here on this earth. Let him live this way. That's the meaning of the verse. Do you want to live a good life? Do you want to have a good life and see good days? What is the good life? If you go out into the world and ask them that question, they'll say, well, the good life is to have plenty of money in the bank account. The good life is to have health and strength at all times. The good life is to have peace in my family. The good life is to be able to enjoy all the pleasures that I want in the world to my heart's content. That's the good life. And if I can have that life, then I'll be happy. But the whole scripture makes plain, that's not the good life. That's man's version of the good life. That's a selfish version of the good life. And that life ends in the the flaming fires of hell. If that's what you live for. There's a broad way, Jesus says, and there's a narrow way. And there are many walking on the broad way, thinking they're living the good life. But there are few that enter in on the narrow way. What is the good life? Do you want to live a good life? And what do you mean by that? Peter tells us, David tells us what that good life is. That's the last verse of our text. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That's why I said that life ends in the burning flames of hell. 
Because those who live an evil life of self-indulgence and they have no God or Christ in their life, that life ends in hell. God's face is set against them. But the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. That's the good life. The good life is to know God loves you. And to know that every day. The good life is to know that God's eyes are watching over me. God is providing all that I need. He's taking care of me. In riches and in poverty. In sickness and in health. In good times and hard times. He's always there. He's always with me. He's faithful to me. His eyes are over me. And his ears are open to my prayers. So that when I cry out to him, he hears me and he answers me. Isn't that the life that we want? Isn't that the good life? The good life is the life of dwelling with God in sweet fellowship. So the apostle says, whoever desires to enjoy that good life, Let him live as a Christian. Because God has sent his son to obtain all these riches and blessings for us. And to give a foretaste of those blessings already in this life. By faith in the way of living the Christian life. There's no other way. This is God's way. God has appointed it. God has set it down. God shows it to us. He points it to us. And he calls us into it. And it's also God's grace alone that enables us to walk on that path. Psalm 37, verse 37. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright. Meaning, Not a man who is without sin, but a man who is perfect in Christ and who is living the godly life. Mark that man, for the end of that man is peace. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give thanks to thee for thy word. We give thanks to thee for Christ and him crucified, who has obtained for us all the blessings that we will ever inherit. And we give thanks to thee that thou dost exhort us to walk on the path that thou hast ordained, to live a godly life, a life of love, of compassion, of pity. And may we take to heart all that we have heard and put it into practice, that thy grace might be glorified.